This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 15235 kHz on the 31 meter band to West Africa. I am Spumana Lezondi with Ann Musa and Figili Lingwadi. Let's take a look at our top stories. Death threats to South Sudan's veteran journalist Niel Bol again have forced him to quit journalism. Scholars and constitutional experts in East Africa and the Great Lakes region have criticized African leaders who refuse to relinquish power when their terms end. And on Sunday, South Africa's Benedict Daswa will be beatified by the Catholic Church in his home village in Limpopo. Let's get the news from En Musa first. A very good evening to you. I'm Anne Musam. Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe has sworn in new ministers in a reshuffle that increased the size of his cabinet. The reshuffle, the third in nine months, also filled vacancies left after a purge of perceived allies of fired Deputy President Joyce Mujuru. Mugabe sworn in three cabinet ministers, two ministers of state and eight deputies. His nephew, 47-year-old Patrick Ziawo, is the new minister of indigenization. Shinganyoka reports. The appointments are seen as entrenching support for Vice President Emerson Mnangagwa, a likely successor to President Mugabe. ZANU-PF continues to be plagued by infighting over who will succeed the 91-year-old leader. Last year, President Mugabe fired his vice, Joyce Mujuru, as well as her perceived allies within the party for allegedly plotting to oust him. An international network of human rights groups say armed groups are looting schools, threatening teachers and students and stealing food and education kits destined for youngsters in the Central African Republic. A report by the Watchlist on Children and Armed Conflict released says the mostly Muslim Seleka rebel coalition and the anti-Balaka Christian militia have stripped some schools bare, taking doors, desks, roofs, books and other material. The organization conducted a five-week research a research mission to the impoverished nation to investigate the attacks and military use of schools. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has paid tribute to the 13 South African nationals who were killed in the 1981 raid in Matola outside Maputo. Earlier, the President and his Mozambican counterpart, Philippe Nuisi, laid wreaths on the graves of the 13 former ANC cadres killed by South African troops. Zuma elaborates. On this solemn occasion, which is reflective of the deep historic ties bind our two countries, we pay homage to the fallen martyrs of the Matola Raid of 1981, as well as all the fallen men and women that fought courageously in the liberation struggle that defeated the apartheid system. The Matola Raid constituted part of the apartheid destabilization campaign against the countries and peoples of Southern Africa. 
The construction of an unexpected 78 major new dams in sub-Saharan Africa over the next few years will lead to an additional 56,000 malaria cases annually. This is according to a new study which uh, calls for dam projects to consider better disease control measures. Recommendations include environmental controls such as introducing fish that eat mosquito larvae in dam reservoirs, which could also help reduce malaria cases in some instances. Senior researcher at the International Water Management Institute Southern Africa office in South Africa's capital Pretoria, Jonathan Luatza. So you find that dams have a greater impact in certain areas than others and that certainly it's not uniform across all of Africa. One of the things we did find is that in areas where malaria is transmitted less intensely, the impact of dams is greater. I think Ethiopia, Kenya, areas in kind of a midland to highland region you know, where there's not as kind of year-round rainfall or intense transmission. In those areas of more moderate transmission, dams have tended to wield a larger impact on malaria transmission in surrounding communities. And finally, an Indian court has convicted 12 of the 13 men accused of planning blasts that ripped through Mumbai commuter trains in 2006, killing more than 180 people and wounding more than 800 others. The court found them guilty of murder and says it will announce their sentences on Monday. They face the death penalty. One of the defendants who was charged with harboring assailants at his home was acquitted by the special court. Seven bombs went off on the packed trains during the evening rush hour. That's the news. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In South Sudan, death threats to the country's well-known veteran journalist, Niel Bol Aken, by a hit squad alleged to be sponsored by the Juba government, have forced him to quit journalism. Here's James Shumanyula. South Sudan veteran journalist Niel Bol Aken has quit journalism after receiving numerous death threats from people he believes to be members of a hit squad allegedly sponsored by the Juba government of President Salva Kiir. Nial Bolakin has been editor of independent citizen newspaper since South Sudan gained independence four years ago. The newspaper, as well as a private station he owned, have been shut down by the government for allegedly, as the Juba authorities put it, spreading false information. But Nial Bolakin has denied government claims, saying his newspaper and television station have always balanced the news put out for the public. When I reached Nial Bolakin by telephone in Juba, he revealed that threats to his life have become the order of of the day. Always under threat, actually. I don't move. I'm blaming the government. I think the government has failed, and now they are blaming us for their failure. Do you think that uh, we still have freedom of journalism in South Sudan? No, we don't have free journalism. Nial Ball Akin's disclosure that his life is in danger comes at a time when the media fraternity in South Sudan has recorded the mysterious death of eight of their colleagues over the past one year. Some of the journalists died after President Salva Kiri publicly threatened to kill journalists who reported negatively against his government. As veteran journalist Nial Ball Akin says goodbye to the 
the profession he has practiced for many years. Alfred Taban, spokesman for South Sudan Journalists Association, whose newspaper The Monitor has also been shut down by the Juba authorities, discloses the government's ire against independent media. The government has often complained about the stories that we have carried. They actually don't like stories to be balanced. They want the government to put across each side of the story, and they don't want these stories to be balanced by what the opposition says. It is a disaster to freedom of the press. South Sudan Information Minister Barnaba Mariale Benjamin suggests the legal step that aggrieved journalists can take singling out veteran journalist Niale Akin. He should go to court. That's allowed in our constitution. That's what democracy is all about. If you think that what your government is doing is wrong, the constitution of the country allows you to take your government to court. Foreign Affairs Minister Barnaba Mariale Benjamin pointed out that sensitive stories of fighting published in independent South Sudan newspapers could plunge Africa's newest nation into massive killings similar to the 1994 genocide in the Central African state of Rwanda. The story of Rwanda. When that genocide happened, it was the radio, the press, and the papers that agitated inter-ethnic fighting. So the government is always careful of what is written so that it doesn't agitate our own people, so that they can begin to kill each other like what we have seen in Rwanda. I think we have learned lessons from there. But South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuail Weth described the coverage by independent media as uncalled for and unbalanced. If you can go as far as interviewing the rebels to come and disseminate their ideas to the people and poison their minds, that is the negative idea. That was South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuail Weth. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanula. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. On Twitter, you can find us on Channel Africa One. That is Channel Africa One on Twitter. Scholars and constitutional experts in East Africa and the Great Lakes region have criticized African leaders who refuse to relinquish power when their terms end. In a seminar organized by the Institute for Security Studies in Nairobi in Kenya, African leaders have been criticized for mobilizing political support and other legal means in order to extend their term limits and remain in leadership indefinitely. From Nairobi, here's Mwaiki Konyo. In a seminar organized in the Kenyan capital Nairobi by the Institute of Security Studies, scholars and constitution experts from East Africa and the Great Lakes region have criticized African leaders for staying put and refusing to relinquish power where the term limit ends. They singled out President Pierre Nkunzinza of Burundi Yoweri Museveni of Uganda and Paul Kagame of Rwanda, who are seeking re-election for another term despite the long presidential incumbency. According to Dr. Bauka Yolan of the Institute of Security Studies in Nairobi, it is necessary for the African leaders to observe and embrace their term limit in an effort to promote political stability in the continent. I think what we're looking for in Africa is a possibility of political power being rotated different different groups who have different interests. I think if you look at countries in Europe where there is no term limits in some of them, there's a clear sense that the electoral process is an opportunity for the people to clearly have their, their voices heard and have the possibility of change and direction in the policy that their governments are undertaking. It's been a little bit more difficult in Africa as leaders have kept power for a very long time since independence. And part of the reason why that has happened 
that a lot of the governance structures in sub-Saharan Africa have remained the same since the colonial era. So there's a sense that if you constitutionally put a provision that would stop people from remaining in power for more than the people have said they should stay in power, then there will be an opportunity or an opening for other stakeholders to then take the country in a different direction if the direction in which the country is going is not what the people want. There has been debate and controversy in the Great Lakes region over whether Nkunziza, Burundi, Ayori Museveni of Uganda and Paul Kagame of Rwanda should run for another term considering their long term in office. Museveni have been in power since 1986. But why do African leaders refuse to relinquish power? Dr. Otio Nanjala of the Nairobi University. I think the African leaders want to stay in power because of pure selfish personal reasons, first and foremost, because they want to perpetrate the big man syndrome, which is unacceptable in the current democratic transition. The other reason may be that there's a weakness in their legal and constitutional framework. They have made their constitution easy to change, and they can therefore brainwash their, their populations of those countries to change the constitution to allow them to stay in power. The third reason why most some of these countries' leaders want to stay in power is because it is the level of those political awareness. It is the population may not be exposed to issues of democracy, issues of term limits, rule of law. It reflects their level of political awareness and political socialization. We are people are educated, we are political people are politically exposed and properly socialized. We are able to see that there's benefit to limit term limits because absolute power corrupts absolutely. The delegates also examine the relationship between term limits for the African leaders and the question of sustainable peace, development, constitutionalism and democratic consolidation in the region. Dr. Eoland again. I think it's only fair to link the two to a certain extent. I think good leadership allows for the opportunity for increased investment from different partners. It also allows for stability um, and it, it permits to a certain extent a country to develop. <laughs> However, the key test of leadership, in my opinion, is what happened between elections. And the fact that the population is, has difficulties engaging with political leaders is a problem. Even if a leader has good development policies in the long run, if after his term it's not possible to have peaceful transition of power, what you have is a Côte d'Ivoire. A Côte d'Ivoire which was developing very rapidly post-independence, but following Ofwebonye's death, the power vacuum due to weak institutions resulted in a civil war. And I think that's where the link between stability, constitutional integrity, and development come into play. And as Uganda and Rwanda prepare for the upcoming election that will probably extend the term limit of President Museveni of Uganda and Paul Kagame of Rwanda, delegates were skeptical on the impact of this election on constitutionalism and good governance in the region. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaiki Konyo in Nairobi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
The International Monetary Fund, IMF, says it will be at least three years before Zimbabwe can start accessing loans from international lenders and needs to deepen economic reforms in the medium term to strengthen its ability to repay debt. The Southern African nation owns foreign credit as 9 billion US dollars and has been struggling for five years to recover from hyperinflation and widespread food shortages. Simon Muchemwa has more from Harare. The International Monetary Fund Review Team helping Zimbabwe come up with strategies to reform and recover economically has painted a gloomy picture. According to the IMF, Head of Delegation Domenico Faniza, Zimbabwe will not meet its 2.5% growth rate this year and revised it downwards to 1.9%. IMF says poor economic environment coupled with natural disasters such as floods and drought have negatively impacted on the country's growth rate. The second review by IMF comes following an agreement in October last year that Zimbabwe would reform and drastically reduce its wage bill under what is called staff monitored program. However, Zimbabwe will take a long way to recover, Domenico Faniza, IMF mission head, said. Why do we think that re-engaging is so important? Well, to do that, I think we should start maybe by saying the obvious, that let's say the roots of the Zimbabwe economic problems are mainly two, I would say. First of all, a general environment that does not favor private economic activity. And second, a widespread lack of confidence that reflects, in a sense, the legacy of the hyperinflation period. IMF says it's not easy to recover an economy that has gone through hyperinflation like Zimbabwe without reforms and political will. There are no easy fixes. Ad hoc approaches do not work. What you need is a comprehensive and medium-term horizon for reform. The reforms that are needed are costly and will take long time to be felt in economic and to produce the kind of resources that are needed to support, to change things. In the meanwhile, the country needs financing. And the problem for Zimbabwe is that the country cannot access financing, either from international financial institutions or bilateral credit. Why? Because it does not serve, serve its debt. In other words, the country is heavily into a risk. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe's finance minister, Patrick Chinamasa, aged his counterparts in government to, to be realistic and call a swede a swede, no matter how bad things are. What we are doing currently is what we should be doing with or without IMF. Let's be very clear. Whether in future I get traumatized, let's wait. But for now, for instance, you don't need the IMF to tell you that if your revenue is $100 and you spend $85 of it paying workers, you have no tool of growth. You don't need the IMF to tell you that. You don't need the IMF to tell you that if your banks are running non-performing loans, the sector can collapse. You don't need to t- the IMF to tell you that. So that is the stage where we are with, with, with our relationship with the IMF. 
At one moment during the round table discussion in Harare, there was a heated debate between IMF and the Zimbabwean government regarding sanctions. Zimbabwean Foreign Affairs Minister Samuel Mbengegui was bitter the round table members did not talk of sanctions. Look around the world and see what has happened to economies of countries which have been sanctioned. Now, as we all know, Zimbabwe is one of those countries you know, who have been uh, under sanctions for well over a decade. And it is a bit odd that uh, uh, a round table to discuss the economic prospects of a country under sanctions, no one wants to mention sanctions. However, the finance minister called for restraint and asked his fellow countrymen to quickly wake up from their slumber as Zimbabwe has no money and should therefore re-engage with multilateral institutions to boost the ailing economy. What I think were of concern to me were the rigidities in the labor market. And I'm happy that with the recent reforms that market labor market flexibility has been introduced. I'm aware that workers are not happy, employers are not happy, but where I sit in a neutral position, thinking about the economy, I'm very pleased with the reforms. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Hi, I'm Kwasoza Nadlamini Zuma, the chairperson of the African Union Commission. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. On Sunday, South Africa will have its first saint and martyr, Benedict Daswa. About 35,000 people are expected to at the Benedict Daswa shrine site at Chitanini village in the Limbobo province. Daswa was killed in 1990 for opposing witchcraft. Tabilembele has more. More than 30,000 Catholics from South Africa and the Sadek region are heading to rural Chitanini in Toyando to witness one of their own to be made a blessed. Benedict Daswa, a son, husband, father of eight, school principal and community leader, will posthumously be given this honor which is usually reserved for priests, nuns and monks. The Catholic Church is honoring him for dying for their faith. Spokesperson for the Catholic Church in Southern Africa, Father Smilo Mgadi, recalls the day 44-year-old Daswa died. They blocked the road for him in the afternoon of that day. When he came out, they started stoning him. He ran to a house somewhere. Uh, he hid in a, in, a, in a hut there. Then they came, they took him out. They stoned him, clapped him with a nobkiri, and eventually poured on him boiling water, and he died. And it is reported that when he died, he said the words that Jesus said, the words that uh, Stephen said, Lord, do not count this on these people. Even in death, there was nothing ordinary about Daswa. At the time, it was considered unusual to have more than one Catholic priest attend a layman's funeral. But five priests came to honor Daswa on the day he was laid to rest. For funerals, we normally wear purple. But the priests that day who were there, without permission, they broke protocol. They decided to wear red. Red is the color of the people who died to shed their blood for the faith. The increase in witchcraft or the occult globally encouraged Pope Francis to approve the beatification of Daswa. Beyond Africa, in the West, there is a rise in the belief on the, in the <coughs> occult. So the Pope is saying, Benedict Daswa stands as a model for Christians not to fall back 
to the beliefs of witchcraft, not to fall back to the beliefs of the occult, for Christians to give their lives completely to Jesus Christ. Gabrielle Salamlela from St. Peter Clever Catholic Church in Pimville, Soweto, says this beatification will give hope to those who felt they've had nowhere to turn. Everyone is watching forward. So I think Meanwhile, these Catholic youth who will travel from Soweto to Venda are looking forward to the event but are unsure of what to expect. As far as I understand, it means that the person that's going to be beatificated is now saint and not human now on earth and now will be closer to God. It's an, like, an experience like you'd, you'd want to experience, you see. And then learning about God and all the things that happened while you were young. It inspires me to live according to the, the ways of Daswa. Tekiso Tlachwane and Figile Mukwena are elder members of the church and will not miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It strengthens my faith because it takes away all our teaching and theology from a book or from somewhere. It brings it right to where we are. He's now our black saint. As a Catholic, it means that now I can pray and ask him to intercede for me. In a letter written to all parishioners across the country, leader of the Catholic Church in Southern Africa, Cardinal Wilfred Napier, called on believers to pray for the canonization of Daswam. Father Mgadi explains. We are inviting people to pray to God through his intercession. And if any miracle does happen and is proven beyond doubt that it, were, it happened through his intercession, then he can then be called the saint so he can any church in the whole world can now venerate him cardinal napier has also described Daswa as an ideal role model for south african boys and men as the country fights against violence and abuse inflicted on women and children Tabilempele, johannesburg Hi, I'm Kosoza Nadlamini Zuma, the chairperson of the African Union Commission. We are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are on frequency 15235 kHz on the 31 meter band to West Africa. On DSTV, you can find us on the Audible Bouquet Channel 902. Over there, you still listen to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. More than 300 travelers from different countries have been stranded in Cameroon for more than three weeks after the country's national carrier Come Air Company abandoned them at the Yaounde and Douala International Airports. Some of the travelers have been sleeping at the airport. Airline officials say the problem was caused by the lack of aircraft as they are being repaired. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzika has more from Yaounde. At least 300 clients of Cameroon's national air carrier are staging a strike at the Yaoundé office of Kameko. 45-year-old Giselle Muniga from the Central African Republic's town of Bangui says they have been abandoned for at least three weeks and her one-month visa is about to expire. I want my money back. I no longer want to travel with this company. Let them refund my money. I have spent five nights sleeping at this airport and nobody is attending to me. 
even though they are well informed that I am diabetic patient traveling to Paris for treatment. Jean-Claude Silla, the most senior government official in the Fundi division, where the travelers are striking, says he has received assurances from the air company that they will be able to travel in the days ahead. Les clients commerciaux qui ont subi des désagréments. Alors, message que je leur apporte, c'est qu'un avion serait là. He says he is comforting those Kameko clients who have been suffering enormous prejudices by telling them that he has received information that about 200 of them will be leaving tomorrow for Paris on a chartered flight. He says he has asked that the names of the first 200 be given to him and from there the company will take commitments to transport others in the days ahead. This is not the first time the clients have been promised. I decided to go find out at the Yaoundé Simalen International Airport if travelers who had been promised a space in a chartered flight had actually left. 22-year-old Prudence Nkon, traveling to Switzerland, says they were deceived. She says last Saturday they asked them to assemble at the airport for a flight at 4 p.m. He says there was no flight and that they have assembled at the airport this morning to press for their rights to be respected and they have told them the planes are undergoing repairs. Kameko General Manager Nana Sanjon says he is begging his clients to be comprehensive. On avait un problème d'avion, il y avait le Jack qui était en panne, il y avait le Alpha Charlie qui était bloqué à Paris, le Charlie Bravo. He says the biggest flight, the Jar, is undergoing repairs for its broken engine in France, and that the second plane is undergoing maintenance work, and the remaining one cannot transport everyone. He says they have made arrangements for the travelers to leave Yaoundé and Douala in the days ahead, and pleads that they should be comprehensive and that things will not continue being like this after the planes should have been repaired. Barely 200 of the over 600 passengers have been able to leave Cameroon with a few purchasing travel tickets of other companies with the hope they shall one day be reimbursed and prejudices they suffered paid when Cameroon law courts would have handled the issue. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yawundi. Hello. Uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of African Renaissance. The United Nations says the humanitarian situation for people living in a war-torn Yemen has reached catastrophic proportions. Four out of five Yemenis, that's 21 million people, need assistance as a result of an ongoing conflict between the government forces and rebels. UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Yemen, Johannes van der Klau, elaborates further on the situation. 
The humanitarian situation here in Yemen remains extremely worrying and in certain areas of the country it's um, nearing a, a catastrophe because Yemen was always already a so-called protracted humanitarian crisis and this has severely aggravated since the escalation of the conflict end of March. We are now more than five months into this war and the conflict has resulted in a surge of humanitarian needs. In the beginning of the year, out of 25 million Yemenis, some 16 million were in need of some form of humanitarian assistance. That was some 60%. Now we are at 21 million. Some 80% is in need of some form of humanitarian assistance, be it food, access to water, access to medical care. So four out of five Yemeni is dependent on external humanitarian aid. These are staggering numbers. The needs are growing, but the problem is you cannot reach the people in need with the humanitarian assistance right now under the current situation. Well, that is indeed one of our big challenges. So in the face of these, these staggering needs, you need to act, you need to respond as a team, which we are trying. But if the conflict continues, it's extremely difficult to get the aid supplies safely transported to the people in need of it along front lines along checkpoints. So that is one very, um, very um, challenging situation. You need to negotiate as many parties, with the parties on the ground uh, fighting, but also with the coalition forces in Riyadh. You need not only to ensure these convoys and this transport being safely delivered to the people, you need to access to the people who are often trapped in war zones. The UN has warned uh, that the acute malnutrition in some parts uh, in Yemen has reached critical levels. What does that mean? That means that you don't know if you have a meal the next day. That is, you know, I mentioned the, the 25 million Yemeni, some 13 million are what we call food insecure. They don't know whether the next day they have a meal. So that's half of the population. Now, amongst these people, we have children. We have now 1.8 million children who are suffering from some form of malnutrition. And it used to be last year 0.8 million, 800,000. There's a million children more. We did a lot to get these numbers down, but in this conflict, in this situation, now it's only going up. So that's extremely worrying. Mr. van der Klauw, uh, update us on the humanitarian efforts. Any new operations or convoys to reach people in need? Yeah, we continue, of course, all the time to work. We need, of course, to prioritize because we have limited means and with staggering numbers, we need to, to address the extremely vulnerable where the needs are highest. So at the moment, for instance, that is in the city of Thais, the third city of the country, which is the theater of heavy fighting, and um, where the city is being blocked off uh, from any assistance from outside, where within the city the hospitals had to close down, the water pumping systems had to stop for lack of fuel, where the people could not get out of the houses or cannot get out of the houses to go to distribution points for food or domestic items. So we have been negotiating with all the parties on the ground in, in, involved in the conflict and also with the coalition forces uh, in, in Riyadh to ensure that we can at least now bring much-needed medical, food, and other forms of aid, domestic items, by trucks to the city of Thais, but then also, very importantly, within the city, that we are able to distribute the goods, that the people can go out to the distribution points, that we can bring the fuel to the water pumping system, that we can reopen the hospitals, that we can supply them with much-needed medical equipment. So this has cost us 10 days, and hopefully today, now, we the first 
set of joint movements of trucks has gone off. But it still uh, it shows how difficult it is to negotiate all this. It takes days and days with the parties because you work in the war zone. The Security Council is holding consultations on the situation in Yemen. What is your message to them? The most important one is that this conflict has to stop. And the only solution therefore is, is a political one, a negotiated settlement. Humanitarians cannot uh, step in where political action is needed. We can never solve the problems of Yemen. Second, the humanitarians are extremely high, even if today the conflict would stop. We need to address this extremely impoverished population, the lack of access to lack of functioning basic services and that means that it's not only humanitarian aid which has to be poured into the country it's the resumption of commercial imports because this country Yemen is dependent for 90 percent of its paper footprints of imports by vessels that is UN humanitarian coordinator for Yemen Johannes van der Klau speaking to UN radio's Reim Abaza the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADC, will this coming Sunday embark on a walk in the country's port city of Durban as part of efforts to raise awareness about suicide and remember people who took their own lives. The non-governmental organization has asked the public to take part in the walk and show their support in remembrance of a lost loved one and survivors of suicide. The global community marked World Suicide Prevention Day yesterday. SADC's N. Raja Kumar elaborates on the aim of the walk. The aim of this awareness walk is to create exposure for those that have lost loved ones through suicide and to remember their loved ones because there is so much of stigma surrounding the loss of a loved one due to suicide that it is important for us to remember and help and to heal the person. And how big of a problem is suicide among young people in South Africa at the moment? It's actually quite a huge problem because 10% of all deaths amongst the young population is due to suicide. And we have statistics that show that approximately 23 suicidal attempts are made on a daily basis by young people. Why does Sadiq feel so passionate about this course? I think we're very passionate about it because suicidal ideas, suicidal thoughts and suicidal acts are part of having a mental illness. And SADEG is a leading advocacy for mental health. And if you don't have depression, you're not going to have suicidal thoughts. And we want to spread the message and show that there is help out there and that you can contact SADEG or any other NGOs that offer such assistance so that they can heal and get better. What would you say is the hardest part about your work? What difficulties do you face? I think the challenges that we have is the lack of education, even amongst healthcare promoters, about mental health and how it affects the person, it affects the family, it affects the community, and affects the country in total. For people who do not know, Anne, what are the top indicators for suicidal intent? How do you know if someone is planning to take their life? The first and foremost sign is that they start talking about leaving this world or being a burden and feeling useless and that the world would be better without them. They could even write letters indicating their intent of killing themselves or they can start giving away their prized possessions, things that used to matter the most to them. They start giving it away to their loved ones, to their peers, to their colleagues, and they even let drop 
sometimes slips of tongue like next year you're not i'm not going to be around for my birthday or i won't see you when it's your great occasion they give clues what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about people suffering from suicide related thoughts i think the most misunderstood thing is that you feel that this is the only option is to take your life and suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem no matter how big the problem is it is not worth taking your life for you'll agree with me that suicide is a very important issue especially with the stigma attached to it like you indicated earlier how can we get such issues out into the open and do you think that this is a problem that can be solved Yes, most definitely it's a problem that can be solved and how to create more awareness is exactly what we're doing now is we talk about it Elizabeth, but we we share with each other what the pains are what the warning signs are so we can be alert to these things especially when you have a loved one and they contemplating suicide or they showing depressed signs and symptoms you need to know about that education sharing the message and creating exposure and destigmatizing suicide that it's never going to happen to me and that it happens to other people that myth must be dispelled and we need to deal with this as a serious concern let's go back to the walk on sunday how can the general public take part well basically there is a contact number and contact email that they can actually go to to assist and to participate in the walk if the walk starts on sunday from well 8:30 for 9 a.m. at the Durban View Park which is on the Marine Drive in Amshlanga and if they want to go on the website they can log on to www.survivorsofsuicide.co.za or they can contact Lori on 0832566 993 That is Anne Rajkumar of the South African Depression and Anxiety Group speaking to Elizabeth Lidikha Across the globe every second there's always a breaking story Kultan Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa For Channel Africa I'm Lilian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague Reporting for Channel Africa I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time George Muhango Channel Africa Blantyre This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare Zimbabwe this is Simon Muchemwa Reporting for Channel Africa this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé From an African perspective listen to Channel Africa in English Kiswahili French Silozi Portuguese and Chinyanja informing the world about Africa Ntakwana ngatani in Mohalizuk Lesotho Reporting for Channel Africa Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi Join us every day and know what is happening around you Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance The Global Partnership for Financial Inclusion GPFI forum which took place in Turkey this week saw the launch of the Year Community an entrepreneurship platform providing online community coaching and funding opportunities to young entrepreneurs with 700 million young people said to be currently looking for a job this highlights the need for stimulating job creation worldwide the Year Community and GPFI believe that youth entrepreneurship has an important role to play in tackling the this huge challenge for more on this issue here's the year community coordinator philip harris 
So this started about a year ago. So that was in May 2014, because this was part of uh, China New Finance's annual summit, which was taking place in New York. So this is where we've invited, as well as many stakeholders, to talk about financial education, financial inclusion, as that's the general work of China Youth Finance International, which is the organization behind the year community. So we had many workshops and discussions with young entrepreneurs. And the idea was to say, well, okay, what are the needs of young entrepreneurs nowadays? What are the difficulties, the challenges that they're facing? So essentially, the YEC community came as a way to address those needs because there were some constants in what was missing. Every single entrepreneur would tell us that there's a lack of access to coaching, there's a lack of access to information, that the bureaucracy when setting up a business is annoying, and that's whatever country they come from. And of course, there's always a lack of access to finance. And so that's how we came with the idea of the Yeah community. Philip, I understand that this platform is geared towards tackling the global challenge of youth unemployment. Elaborate more on how much so have you managed to address this challenge of unemployment, especially amongst young people all over the world? Right now, it's quite indirect. The way we tackle youth unemployment through the community is quite simply to say that in whatever country you are nowadays, if you're young, youth unemployment is going to be an issue. And unfortunately, there are just not enough jobs provided typically by government or by the private sector to provide employment for these youth. So there was, okay, how can we support young entrepreneurs who are creating jobs not only for themselves, but also for other youth? What are the ways we can support them? And so this is why we geared the YEAH community towards these uh, young entrepreneurs with the idea that by helping these entrepreneurs grow, they will be able to employ more more youth in their region, in their community, and that's how we got started. This community is said to be growing, already having about 3,000 members from 70 countries. For interest's sake, how is the representation of African young entrepreneurs? They're quite heavily represented, actually. Typically, countries like Kenya and Ghana, or as well as Nigeria, are some countries where we have some of the most members. And we found overall that many places in Africa, and especially, let's say, around the east or the west of Africa, the air community and uh, the way we address the issue has got a lot of very good responses and a lot of uh, popularity. So that's where we have uh, most of our members, actually. The reasons for that, there are many different reasons, but one of the things we know is that, let's say, if we take the case of Kenya or Ghana, typically, these are countries where there's a huge young population. There are a lot of innovative young entrepreneurs. However, they tend to really, really lack in access to finance, especially, and also access to coaching or mentoring, and that so far there are not that many other solutions on the market. And so that's why we think the YEAH community is particularly well represented in Africa and in a few regions especially. Take us through the benefits of the YEAH community being an online platform. That's a good point. So there are two aspects in particular, I think. The first one is simply we want to build this as a community, essentially like the the Facebook of entrepreneurs. So we have the goal, which is ambitious, but 
feasible of being the biggest online community for young entrepreneurs by 2020. Hopefully we'll reach 10 million young entrepreneurs by then. So the fact that it's online really means that we can connect young entrepreneurs from, let's say, have a young entrepreneur from South Africa striking up some business opportunities with a young entrepreneur in Russia or in the Philippines thanks to the online platform, which is just not possible with more traditional approaches. The other aspect is we find that having this online makes it much more relevant and useful for the entrepreneurs because it's much, much more flexible, especially as this platform is also mobile-friendly and we're developing a mobile app for the year community. So that means that for entrepreneurs who, as you know, tend to be busy, maybe they're juggling with different things, this means that we have an approach which is much more flexible for them and which they can access really when they need it. And how can our young listeners who'd love to become part of the community? Well, that's actually really easy. So you just go on the website of the YEC community. So that's www.yeccommunity, in one word, .com. And you just sign up. And it takes about 30 seconds. You can also do it through Facebook or through LinkedIn. And there you go. You can fill in some information about yourself. You can upload a video about your business or about yourself. And you can start promoting everything you're doing online and internationally. That's Philip Harris, coordinator of the Year Community, an online global platform for young entrepreneurs. He was on the line from Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and he was talking to Jane Matebula. We are talking about a group of diseases which are called neglected tropical diseases. These are very easy to control and eliminated in the developed world, but mostly forgotten and neglected and continue to haunt large number of people in the tropical part of the world. Which diseases are we talking about? Leprosy, Kala Azar, Eos, Phileriasis. Now, a couple of those diseases some people may not have heard of, Kala Azar, yours, what are they exactly? Kala Azar is a disease which can be, if not treated, could be fatal to people. This is transmitted by something called sandfly, and these are very easy to control and easy to treat also. And how many people in the region are dying from these diseases each year? In this group of disease, you know, there are several diseases are disabling. Like, for example, phileriasis cause, uh, doesn't as such cause death. Neither the leprosy as such cause death. But Kalazar may cause death. Are these diseases of poverty? Most of these diseases are not only poverty-related, they affect poorest of the poor, and most importantly, even they can be easily treated. Most of these people either do not have access to one dose of treatment which can cure in several cases. People with leprosy uh, can be disfigured, and in in many societies they are stigmatized and often thrown out of the villages or the societies in spite of laws against them. What does the international community need to do to reverse this situation? What we need is a focused, targeted approach with easily available treatment to take these cases to elimination. For example, many of these diseases are only few countries and within few countries they are in very isolated pockets. If we just cover the places and the villages, we can eliminate these diseases.
SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with rugby news. Springbok coach Henneke Meyer says the 31-man rugby squad is well prepared for the World Cup. Meyer was speaking at a special farewell ceremony held at Monte Cassino in Santin in Johannesburg. Every single game is going to be tough, but uh, we're well focused, we're well prepared. I think we've got a great chance, but we'll take it game by game and keep our feet on the ground and don't be arrogant, uh, but uh, we have to back ourselves as well. If we as South Africans stand together, we can achieve great things, and it's great that they write us off. South Africans, you can never write them off, and I can see the countries behind us, and that will give us extra motivation. So, you know, it doesn't matter where you are on the, on the world rankings, the only thing that counts is on the day, and there's seven finals, and we have to win seven, and we really want to do it for our people. South African Sports Minister Figide Mbalula has encouraged the country to rally behind the Springboks. He was addressing a farewell party for 31-man box squad at Monte Cassino in Sentin, north of Johannesburg. The box leave for the World Cup in Britain tonight. The two-time winners will open their campaign against Japan in eight days' time. Today, in our hundreds, in our millions, across the length and breadth of South Africa, because we believe in this team, we know you are going to England not to add up numbers but to represent us with pride. South Africa, black and white, purple and gold, stand behind the Springboks. I believe in the Springboks to bring about hope and to imbue this nation with the spirit of Nelson Mandela. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015. In football news, besides gunning for the top sport, Sunday's crucial CAF Confederations Cup final group game against leader Zamalek at Stade Pedro Sport in Cairo, Egypt, presents Orlando Pirates with a good opportunity to prepare for the semi-finals. This is the view of Pirates head coach Eric Tinkler before they boarded the plane to Cairo last night. He's not focusing much on revenge, but on getting the required result in a game that will kick off at 20.30 Central African time. Quite a bit, I think, you know, but also a fantastic opportunity for us to, to play a very, very good team ahead of the semi-finals. Ideally, we would like to get a, an away first leg, if possible, and, and a, it, it's obviously a good opportunity for us to, to test ourselves ahead of the semis. Obviously, we'd like to finish top of the group. And uh, you know, and and get that home. Se- I mean, that away semi-final first before we play at home. So, so that's the objective. And you know, going with a very, very positive mindset. The players, well, there's not a lot of pressure on them because we're already in the semis. So, I think they can go out there, enjoy the occasion, but also express themselves. But at the same time, realize the importance of trying to secure a result away from home. After coming close to winning the African Champions League title in 2013, but lost to Al Ahly in the final. Tinkler knows that the expectations at home are that they should go all the way. No, exactly. You know, we set our sights on, on, on achieving that right at the beginning. And, uh, you know, we we one step closer. Semis is very important for us to try and ensure that we get through to the final. And irrespective of who we play, we know it's going to be strong opposition, very good opposition, such as Zamalek. Who knows, it could even be them again in the final, similar to what happened to us in the Champions League. We had Alakli in the group phase. And we still found them in, in the final. You know, you could find yourself in that situation again. But obviously this is a great opportunity. It doesn't come that often. And, and we need to try and go all the way and, and bring the trophy home. Unbeaten Floyd Mayweather meets fellow American Andre Beto this Sunday 
Mayweather is unbeaten in 48 professional bouts and can equal Rocky Marciano's record of 49 without a loss with victory over Beto when he defends his WBC and WBA welterweight title at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas in what he insists will be his last fight before retiring and he put his psychological know-how to work on his opponent for Sunday's morning's welterweight title. I know everything that goes on, what my opponent is doing, what he's eating, what moves that he's making. No different from Berto, he went to the boxing gym last night. His weight was low, so he didn't train. Every move that you make, I know. This is called chess, not checkers. Beto has been bombarded by reporters asking him how he will deal with Mayweather's ring intelligence. But I don't dial into the criticism. I don't dial into it. And what I got to stay focused on, and people can say what they want to say. I mean, it's definitely fueled me. It definitely fueled me. But I've been fueled ever since they set the fight. That's your sport news this hour. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. Let's do this. This is Africa Digest. Let's look at our top stories. Death threats to South Sudan veteran journalist Neil Bonaken have forced him to quit journalism. Scholars and constitutional experts in East Africa and the Great Lakes region have criticized African leaders who refuse to relinquish power when their terms end. And on Sunday, South Africa's Benedict Daswa will be beatified by the Catholic Church in his home village in Limpopo. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spumene Lezondi. Producer Jose Dengake, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments on the show, send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus 27823325905. Plus 27823325905. On Twitter, we are on Channel Africa One. It's Channel Africa One on Twitter. We leave you with CCC by Kanda Pangoman.